I'm Ariane Elfant, and this is Death the Podcast. Death is the destruction or permanent end of something. At Death the Podcast, we are looking closely at what happens when something ends. We listen, learn about, and discuss the stories that surround the subject of death. These stories bring up much more than feelings of fear and sadness. They offer opportunities for connection, for hope, and sometimes even for humor. Ultimately, if we are open to exploring death, we create greater potential to experience life. Hi, I'm Ariane Elfant. I'm a clinical psychologist here in New Orleans. I have the pleasure of interviewing Beverly Morris. Beverly, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. Before getting into why I asked you, I want to give people a little background about you. You are an incredible artist. Besides all your private commissions, your work has also been commissioned by Saks Fifth Avenue. You practice yoga, and you're an amazing yoga instructor. You're somebody who truly personifies the importance of the mind-body connection. Besides all that, you have a degree in poli-sci from Tulane and worked for 15 years as a copywriter and creative director for the Times-Picayune. I'm struck in saying all this, Beverly, how well-rounded you are, um, both inside and out. And you're also a cancer survivor and someone who has lost people close to you to cancer. You were originally diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor in 1987, and since that time have had a total of three brain surgeries, the most recent in 2008. All told, you have received four and a half years of chemotherapy and a lifetime dosage of radiation. To say the very obvious, it seems that you are someone who has plenty of personal experience with the subject matter of death. So I guess I'd like to start by asking you to tell me a bit about the first time you recall experiencing real fear that you might die. Well, um, when I was first diagnosed, I, uh, I really wasn't in a lot of fear. Um, and my doctor, Dr. Yassergill, was, uh, I don't know, I kind of felt like it was a, they're removing some very benign thing from my brain. So <clears throat> I didn't experience a lot of fear of death. Um, and it wasn't until the second surgery, which was about a year later, that um, I was very, very scared. And there were two people um, in the brain cancer group who, uh, who I would allow my mother to, to give me the, the phone so I could speak to them. And that was really the first time that I had a lot of fear about what was happening, because I was much more aware of what the dangers were. and. Um, and I remember memorizing my Sprint phone number, which was this very long, uh, there was like a, some kind of a passcode and then the phone number and then there was this thing and I thought, okay, if I can memorize that and say that after a surgery, then I'm, I'm good to go. Which, um, which I was able to do after I, I woke up. So, um, do you still remember the phone number? No, I don't. I do remember my neurosurgeon's phone number in Arkansas. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have trouble remembering my phone number these days. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so, th when you said that there were two people that you would talk to from the group, it was like it was a, a support group. Yes, it was a, a support group for brain tumor survivors. And uh, those two people were Vaughn and Nora. And uh, they just had really profound survivor stories. Both of them have passed away. Um, and 
you know, I don't know what I, I learned from them really was kind of some survival skills and and in particular Vaughn, I think. So I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> that, that, that's okay. What kind what kinds of things did you learn from Vaughn? Well, basically that it was okay to fire a doctor. That was um, really important for me because I did have a doctor who didn't believe that I was having seizures and um, that it was a, that I was being, I don't know, hysterical or that I was making it up in my mind or that it was stress or something. And, um, and this same doctor had um, told Vaughn the same thing when he was found like climbing on these bushes outside of his house. Uh, he didn't know where he was and that the uh, doc that same doctor had also told Vaughn that uh, it was it was all in his head, basically, which in fact it was <laughs> because he had a brain tumor, and so did I. <laughs> so. Well, and so that's got to be so disorienting. I mean, literally, but also you're ha you're saying you're having this experience, and then you're hearing from your doctor. No. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was pretty terrifying, and it was very. Um, really scared me because I started questioning myself like wait a minute maybe I don't know maybe I am is this am I going crazy am I overreacting here and maybe these aren't seizures maybe I'm having panic attacks which that was what he actually thought I was having uh, panic attacks and then I uh, was at work and I had I had gone back to work and I had a seizure at work and they took me to the hospital and that's when they were able to see more of the tumor and so it kind of, um, in a strange way, gave me comfort to know that I wasn't imagining these things and that it was not a panic attack, but that there was still tumor there that um, was causing me to have these seizures. So, so, so the permission to fire a doctor was like, okay, I'm not going back to this guy unless he, unless, you know, I want a doctor around who believes me, right. who knows that I'm telling the truth, and who is going to really listen to me and um, respond to me. Well, so. yeah, that seems key, the, the listening to you, and also that, like, being given that information from Vaughn to listen to yourself, like, that you had something to say that wasn't being attended to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what other survival skills do you feel like you learned? Uh, well, I think having some kind of a community is really important. It was for me. It was, uh, you know, the, the original group of people who were in that brain tumor group um, have pretty much all passed away. Um, Vaughn died in 2008. Um, and so I'm one of the few people who is still, you know, alive from that original group. I'm wondering what it must feel like to out, to outlive people that, that you love, who you saw struggling with somewhat similar things. And Well, it's a bit... Uh, I mean, I, I know that I have survivor's guilt. I also 
feel really grateful to the people um, who passed before me and um, and it's it's it is never easy but um, I was able to witness and kind of bear witness to these people and their struggles and you know with understanding being able to be present with them was was really incredible because there were some people who were very stoic about their death there were some people who uh, there was one woman who I absolutely adored and she um, spent a hell of a lot of money <laughs> and, <laughs> and did some really good shopping <laughs> I mean that sounds that's the superficial part of it but I mean it was um, basically she was like okay um, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want to do for the next uh, year and I'm going to enjoy the hell out of myself and she did her approach is going to be live full out you know and yeah. um, and she did that and there was another uh, cancer survivor who I saw who was really um, very focused on her hair. <laughs> and she had beautiful hair, but she was obsessed with her hair. And I remember her coming to the group and it's like, hey, guess what? You know what? It's not really about the hair. <laughs> you know, it's not about the hair. It's, it's about your life right now. So, so let that go. And I understand that. I mean, I, I, uh, after having the radiation, um, you know, I have this kind of baldish area um, that I remember when my hair was coming out and it's such a part of being feminine is, you know, your hair mm -hmm. and, um, but I could really see her obsession with her hair, which it really did turn into this obsession was maybe a way of like not addressing the fact that she was, uh, really sick yeah. and, and dying. Were you given a certain prognosis in terms of uh, yes, um, the doctor, well, first told me that it was inoperable, and then he said that, I mean, I told him at, at, at a certain point, you know, I would like to have children, he said, well, I wouldn't recommend that, I think you're going to be dead before the kid is a, you know, a teenager, and so, and he was really that, um, course in the way that he delivered said that. it um but the fun interesting thing was that he was the doctor who would always give me the absolute worst prognosis and then my neurosurgeon was the man who would give me the absolute best prognosis like after the surgery he's like oh you'll be back to work in a few days <laughs> so, <laughs> so between the two of them I could somehow find a reality of what was actually going to happen you know so and he said, you know, it depends on on the whether or not this is a low-grade tumor or a high-grade tumor. And if it's a low-grade, it could be years and years before anything happens. He gave me a five-year cutoff. He said, at five years, if you have not had a recurrence, then it will remain a low-grade tumor. We'll know that it's a low-grade tumor. If it um, gets more aggressive, we'll know that it has become a higher grade tumor. So right, it was right at the five year mark that um, I had a recurrence. And there was always a very small part of the tumor that they couldn't uh, take out without, uh, well, they did enough damage, <laughs> but <laughs> they, they couldn't have uh, 
taken it all out without really uh, hurting me. So, so the fact that the fact that they had to leave a certain part there because you don't mess with that part, whatever that part is, is that is that better or, or, or worse for prog prognosis wise? I guess you. I don't. I don't know. But but the you know the neurosurgeon had told me that there was no more tumor in there, and there were a lot of um, other doctors who were very found that to be a very controversial statement because they didn't feel like any tumor can be fully removed through surgery. So I had a suspicion that maybe all of the tumor hadn't been taken out. How do you feel like living with that kind of uncertainty has changed the way you, the way you do live? Well, I know that initially I remember being so incredibly grateful just to be alive. I remember one day <clears throat> I was outside. Well, the other thing as far as the surgery is that I had a really bad reaction to the anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And so I was incredibly nauseous and it was just the worst feeling. And back then they didn't have um, the anti-nausea drugs that they have today. And my mother stayed up all night putting cold, wet compresses on my neck, my my throat and my, you know, my wrists and everything to help with the nausea. And that was like the only thing that helped with that. And um, oh shit, what am I trying to <laughs> Well, you were, ta you were, was I talking you were we were talking about the kind of the uncertainty of not of of prognosis, and so so how does that change the way that you end up living? Oh, okay. So when when I got out of that surgery, where my mother had been, you know, basically nursing me all night, I remember eventually coming home and just being so grateful to be alive. I remember looking around. Now, this could have been one of the anticonvulsants I was on to, but I remember looking around and going, oh, my God, God, am I in heaven? This is, why are the colors are so beautiful, and it's such a beautiful day, and the wind feels incredible, and I'm just raking, and it's beautiful, and life is good, and, you know, uh, and so there is that gratitude, because after being very sick, and I think everyone experiences that after being very sick, you know, to to be well again mm -hmm. feels incredible and to do normal things feels incredible. To go to the grocery store, which I hadn't been able to do, was an incredible thing. So um, it's a, that is a hard feeling to sustain, but it's something that I know is incredibly important that, that I need to remember. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, a, a constant remembering thing of going back to, yeah, this is a really precious thing, that I'm alive, that I'm healthy, that I can talk, that I can walk, that I can speak. Uh, so that kind of gratitude for living, um, you know, something also that I saw in other, other of the cancer survivors. And I remember Nora, who I spoke about earlier, saying, today is a beautiful day. Today is a beautiful day to be alive. And she just said that over and over again. And, you know, I think also a lot about being in the present. Patrick, who was another uh, brain cancer survivor who um, also passed away, he um, spoke about swimming. That was one of the ways that he would keep his health up. 
and he would talk about being in the water and listening to the sound of his own breath and the sound of the water as he did the the crawl and um, how beautiful it was just to be there and present and um, so those are things that you know I take with me those are all lessons from the people that were in that group who in Patrick also passed away but So that kind of like that kind of I guess r- richness that you're talking about of of seeing being able to see the world and from that kind of appreciative place. I mean, I guess I sort of appreciate what you said about that not I mean that that is awesome, but that also not being s- sustainable. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm wondering like what do you do on those days where you're just like this why did this happen to me? Oh, oh I'm You know what? That's a good question because I uh, I remember asking myself that, and then my conclusion was, well, why not me, you know? Maybe I was given this brain cancer to learn some things that I really need to learn to be able to help other people with brain cancer. So I really did take that position of, you know, it could have happened to anyone, and um, and I never got into that place of, you know, why me? It was really more like, okay, why not me? And I was able to help a lot of people um, when they first got diagnosed and also as they went through the, the, you know, their, their time surviving mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. as they went through their time not surviving. So, uh, and I think I have some kind of a tolerance or, you know, I mean, I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of questioning myself. You know, what what is the role of this brain cancer in my life? Like why what is it trying to say to me what benefit do I get from having this which I don't mean to make it sound like I'm responsible for it but that I could use the time to really ask myself those questions well I mean that that sounds incredibly wise also probably I would imagine well it speaks to why people would want you around I think when probably they were in their the most amount of pain Mm -hmm. that's very calming but what I guess to to follow up on what you were asking yourself about like what is this here to teach me Mm -hmm. what have you come up with um well one thing that I know is that I would not give up this experience you know I I wouldn't wish it on another person, but I also wouldn't give up this experience of really learning to love these people in this group, learning how to be present. You know, some of the lessons that I learned, those life lessons that are so invaluable that other people will never have the opportunity of learning because they have never been around someone who is dying or who has some kind of a... um, fatal illness um and you know i did a lot of reading one was uh, bernie siegel love medicine and miracles and um carl simonton's uh getting well again was another one and um sorry i can't remember where i'm going with this but th- they were 
very helpful for me and comforting. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, lost my train of thought. (laughs) No, that's all right. I mean, it sounds like you were open to being comforted. I mean, those are great books. They're incredible. They're incredible books for sure. But um, it also takes a reader to to be open to the, the kind of information and wisdom those books have to impart and mm-hmm. you sound like you're that person like. well yeah one of the things I think in getting well again or it might have been cancer as a turning point one of them was ask your disease what you know why are you here what is it that you're trying to teach me and one of the things that I came up with was that the the diagnosis allowed me to say no which you know, before I had been diagnosed, I mean, I was all out from the time that I woke up in the morning till the time I went to sleep. And I was working really hard, very stressed, um, but I just didn't slow down at all. And and so I would continue to say yes to people, to doing things, to getting things done. And um, I had to really learn how to slow down, to, appreciate my life, how to say no um, with some kind of grace and mm-hmm. dignity to people so that um, I didn't overwhelm myself. And, you know, I would have seizures if I were too stressed out or if I didn't get enough sleep. And so... Um, so those seizures have, have kind of been there as like a a, a warning signal. Mm-hmm. Like. Yeah, it means I need more sleep or... Um, I need to reduce my stress somehow. And my friend Teresa, uh, who is a really close friend, and we worked together at the paper, uh, she's the one who called my mother and she just said, Gail, your daughter is having you know, really bad seizures. She's having grand mals and she needs some help. She needs, you know, I think you should come down here and, and be with her. So my mother was there for a a grand mall that uh, um, for some reason after I had the seizures I wanted to take a bath (laughs) 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 my mother was like no I'm not going to let you take a bath I was like I just want to get in the bathtub that's all I want to do is I want to get in the bathtub and um, then the EMS people were there and I'm like I want to get in the bathtub (laughs) it's this like post-ictal state after a Mm -hmm. grand mall where everything is totally confusing and you can get pretty aggressive so at any rate she finally you know witnessed that she saw what was going on as far as the seizures and it had been a really really rough year I mean there were a couple times where I don't even know how the how the hell I uh, was able to make a phone call there was one time my neighbor I called over there and the neighbor came into my house. You called af- after having a seizure? Um, it must have been like right as I was going into it. Oh and then uh, the, his wife came over and I didn't recognize her. And I was like, get out of my room. Who are you? I don't know who you are. Get out of here. And, you know, so there were a number of um, ambulance rides to the hospital. And... Um, most of them were kind of like that, you know, where I would, you know, go into a seizure and not know where the hell I was and then be in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, you know, having bitten my tongue or, you know, wow. all that kind of stuff. So so was it 
was it harder on you to have your mom bear witness to to this going on or are being alone and um it's, it's amazing that you made a phone call yeah it is yeah um Honestly, I did most of this kind of on my own. Like, she wanted me to give up my studio. She wanted me to um, to stop doing some other things. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And And it really was just my hard-headedness that, you know, kept me going. And I remember with my father, who wanted me to do all of these super-duper alternative treatments, um, you know, finally telling him, look, I don't want to argue over this, but, you know, I've been working at this a long time, and I'm the one that found the nutritionist who works with brain cancer patients. You know, you didn't do that. I did that. So, you know, quit questioning my method of healing Mm -hmm. here and Mm -hmm. if I choose to do a conventional treatment that's on me and I will do what I think is going to save me and uh, the cayenne pepper is not going to stop (laughs) my seizures other than to to really (laughs) my mouth burn and So uh, it was an interesting process, but a lot of it was done by myself, and a lot of it I would go, you know, to my doctor, Dr. Gertler, who's local here, and uh, who, you know, saved my ass many times and saved my life, and, you know, as did Dr. Yasser Gill, and um, so... I'm I'm amazed at your ability to, at least listening, think, well, first of all, listen to yourself, I mean, most people who don't have a brain tumor struggle to listen to that inner voice that you kind of keep coming back to in all of this. I mean, is that something you've always, has that always been you? I don't think so. (laughs) I mean, I'd like to say so. I think I'm still working on it. And I think I'm a human being. And, you know, the struggle is to, you know, continue to learn how to love myself and how to be accepting and how to continue to live my life without regret and without resentment and anger and um you know that's the way to live I mean the other way is a way of just torturing and I would see people in the group who I could kind of tell like who was going to survive and who was not going to survive um and you know what Ariane, I have no idea. I may not survive. I don't know. You know, next month I could get a scan back that says, you know, no, there's been a recurrence or something. Um, So how often is that on your radar, that thought? Well, every time I go, if I have start having little seizures, which I haven't had a grand mal in many years, when I start having lots of these little seizures, then, you know, it becomes an issue. I'll call Dr. Gertler, and um, and she will always set up an MRI very quickly. And she doesn't wait over the weekend before she tells me, you know, okay, everything's fine. Um, and the times that it hasn't been, like, I have a, a real network of doctors. Uh, so if there were any kind of changes, I, you know, I mean, I was very proactive in my recovery and looking reading MRI reports, getting copies of things, getting a three-ring binder, having all my lab work, having all my MRI reports, having all my CD, you know, the CDs 
of the brain so that I could, on my own, FedEx to different doctors and get opinions if there were any questions about what was going on. Mm -hmm. I think the way that I would want to approach my own death would be somehow having a graceful death without, um, you know, having to cling to the idea of my hair's got to be there <laughs> or, <laughs> or <laughs> something else, you know, just having some dignity. Um, and, you know, I could outlive a lot of people. I could also, you know, get that diagnosis that there's been a recurrence. And um, I know that if I do have a recurrence, it is not going to be pretty. It's going to be the, you know, uh, grade three or four, sorry, grade four. Because the last time I had the surgery, it was uh, had been graded up to a grade three, so um, so that I have some some fear around. So what's what's most healing for you? What brings you the most peace? Um, probably being outside. Like the weather that is outside right now is my favorite kind of weather, where it's still warm and the wind is. You know that that brings me an incredible amount of peace. And my artwork, being in my studio, um, gives me that opportunity to not have to be anything other than a creative person making a piece of artwork. And I get to get very focused when I'm at my studio and I'm working on a piece. So it can also be very frustrating too, because ceramics in general you need to have a certain level of patience <laughs> with <laughs> So, uh, yeah, studio, working in the studio, being with my animals, my, uh, you know, hanging out with friends, and... You seem like you have a very good sense of humor. Yeah, that helps. Definitely helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that was pretty much present with everybody in, uh, in the group, or maybe not, <laughs> maybe it's just me, I'm not really sure, <laughs> but I always found things to laugh about that we would all end up laughing, you know, people would think, oh my God, I'm, I'd, I'd ask, you know, whatever guy that I was dating, you want to come to the brain tumor survivor group? <laughs> and I'd be like, no, not really. That's and such an awesome pickup I line. <laughs> I mean, how many guys get to hear that? <laughs> and then, and then um, you know, I'd get there and we would all end up just laughing because of the ridiculous things that would end up happening as a result of, <laughs> you know, having a brain tumor. And it was a very specific set of problems. Well, you you exude so much life. All I can say sitting here across from you is that I have so much gratitude for your willingness to do this and the presence that you have and the energy you give off is is wonderful. Thank you, dear. It is so true. Thank you, Beverly, <laughs> so much. You are so welcome. Anytime you need to talk about brain cancer, <laughs> just, just dial me up. One eight hundred brain. I just have to like this. My friend Will called me, and he was like, "This was right when I was diagnosing." He was like, "Hey, Beverly, um, I know you have a lot on your." M mm, uh, 
I know you have a lot <laughs> on your mind, on going on. So, and he, he was trying to say, I know you have a lot on your mind. <laughs> right. Well, and the thing is, is that, and this, uh, this is the same with you. I know that you, you felt like a couple, I mean, a couple of times, even here when we were talking that you lost your train of thought There's something, there's such a realness and a authenticity to you. That's just there that you don't have to fight for. Um, it's so nice. Oh, so well, nice. that's good, because I find it <laughs> very <laughs> distracting <laughs> and not a good experience. But uh, thank you for saying that. You're welcome. The word death evokes all sorts of personal feelings, images, and stories. These stories are compelling, and sharing them connects us more fully to life. I'm Ariane Alfont, and you've been listening to Death, the podcast. Join us for our next episode in this series. This show is produced and engineered by Eric Merle. Our theme music, It Happened, is written by David Milling and is performed by David Milling and Charles Milling. To hear more of David's music, you can go to his website, davidmilling.com. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher or some other podcast app, if you could take a moment to rate and review us, that helps other people find us. You can find Death the Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. On all of them, we're called Death the Podcast. Death the Podcast is a production of INO Broadcasting. You know Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.